Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast as we continue our series before and after the hunt. Today we're speaking with Jeff. He's from Texas. He's newer to hunting in general and a rookie to kind of western or mountain hunting. And this fall he's taken off into New Mexico for a black bear hunt with several friends who are also newer hunters. So here's a group of guys just headed west, going to do it, learn how to hunt bears, learn how to live in the mountains, and more. I chatted with Jeff, and he had quite a few questions on gear, tactics, strategies, water, and more. And it was really fun to get into this conversation with Jeff. And uh, I've been saying this every episode, but I really can't wait to speak with Jeff after the hunt, hear some stories, lessons learned and just understand his perspective and experience. It's always fun to relive first experiences, and we'll get to do that with Jeff in this podcast today before the hunt, and then later this fall after the hunt. I hope you guys have been enjoying this series. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com, or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message. And you can ask us a question for a future Q&A episode. Right now, let's dive right in with Jeff. All right. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast, man. How are you? I'm good. Good. It's a pretty beautiful morning down here in Texas, so not too hot yet. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so let's start off with some background. This is uh, exciting. I was, let me start here. I was excited to hear when you reached out about this hunt because um, you got a group of guys going on a hunt. You were looking out of state, kind of more of a, you know, Western backcountry type hunt. And you chose Black Bear in New Mexico. And so many guys, I think, from Texas or out east or wherever, think of a western hunt and they're going to start with elk or mule deer maybe even antelope i don't know that i hear many guys starting with bears for example and especially fall bears for that matter so i'm to start there i'm curious how did you guys land on doing a fall bear hunt for this so i mean i don't think the answers is as sexy or as controversial or anything as it might seem it's really more about you know with the with a being a an a you know adult onset hunter um and all and most of us are uh looking at sort of the price tag on and odds on hunting big game in the west especially over the counter and being rookies um black bear seems like sort of one of those especially fall black bear seems like a kind of an untapped well i say untapped just an underutilized hunt you know it's something where we can go out there'd be less density of people um, which I think just by virtue might increase our odds or at least our odds of having fun and not running into hunters every day. Um, but then also meat yields for us, you know, we, no, nobody in our group is a trophy hunter, so to speak. I mean, not that that's not that I see anything wrong with that. It's more about, I want to go out hunt big game in the West. Um, I, I don't want to spend an arm and a leg on an outfitter or, wait 10 years to draw a good tag or, you know, those types of things. So we just, I mean, black bear in New Mexico, and I love that country. I'd spent some time there and we lived a couple of uh, years there in high school. 
And um, it just seemed like a great opportunity. And then not only is it um, big game, big meet, hopefully, um, it, it seems like a, a true uh, find the animal and find opportunities. It's not um, uh, like what we experienced down here. So it, it satisfies, it ticks all the boxes of the Western hunt. Um, it's closer than most places because it's in New Mexico. I mean, it's probably going to be a 12 hour drive for us, but, um, as far as black bear go, it's particular. I mean, I guess we could probably get into some cow elk hunts or things like that, but it just seemed like this, it just kind of called to us. Like this is the opportunity, um, for us to jump on. It's, yeah. uh, it's a great area and the, the numbers, uh, the quota numbers are pretty high. It looks like, and they don't harvest, it doesn't seem like they've harvested their quota um, in many of these units, especially in that Gila and that zone 10 in a few years. So um, that's sort of the background on why we picked it. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I, I eventually we'll get into those other things maybe, but if this turns out to be the fun hunt and it seems still accessible, you know, when we, when we plan the next one, that's probably what we'll do. I love it, man. It's just, like you said, it's not a call it a sexy answer. It's just a very practical thing. And I, I just, I, I feel like it's been overlooked a bit. So I was just curious to hear about it. So when you say quota, can you give me the rundown on this tag? Cause I'm not even familiar. Is it essentially an over-the-counter guaranteeing tag, but then there's a quota on the season. So is this one of those situations with the quota you're checking in during the hunt to see if that quota has been filled and you can keep hunting on your tag or uh, what are some of those details? Yeah, so um, every zone has a uh, quota. And in New Mexico, the game management zones are broken up per animal. So it's a little bit confusing. So an elk zone isn't the same as a bear zone, and that isn't mm -hmm. the same as a cougar zone. So, yeah, you, there's a quota to meet, and it's driven off of the females uh, harvested. So, yeah, we'll have to call in occasionally um i forget if it's a two-day roll um but we'll have to call in to make sure the hunt's still open i'm not being that we're uh we'll be hunting in the second week of um of the season I, i'm just i'm not really that concerned that we'll they'll shoot somebody will get uh harvest a hundred and some odd bears i think it is out of there um and really uh, the big concern for us is um, if we decide to do uh, cougars on top of it, that'll be the other question because we're, we're thinking about add-on tags for cougars. Um, and that seems to be another set of rules that, um, that I, I've just started diving into it. It reads like it could be pretty volatile um, when they decide to pull because the female portion of that is pretty low compared to um, mm -hmm. the bears. So yeah, we'll, we will have to check in beforehand and, um, I've already made a contact at the, the game and fish department. So, um, he'll be able to tell us if we're barking up, if we're going the wrong direction. So, yeah. Tell me about that. Making a contact. I think it's a great resource. We often encourage listeners. If you're going to hunt a new state, new species, et cetera, like call fish and game with some questions. I don't know that we've ever phrased that as having like a contact, but what does that mean for you? How was that established? It sounds like maybe there's a little bit of a, maybe a relationship, a strong word, but at least have enough, uh, a little bit of rapport, familiarity with this guy. Maybe you can, you know, stay in touch with him directly. Is that what you're thinking through the hunt and the planning? Well, he, um, 
and it was again it's very practical you know just like you said on your podcast and others they say just don't be afraid to reach out to these people and um that's what i did i found the nearest game and fish office and my two questions to him which were you know sort of conversation starters were first of all um when i when we do harvest a bear and we need to get the pelt tag do we contact an officer? Do they come to us? Do we have to meet them somewhere? Can they meet us at the processor? Those types of, um, you know, those logistics. And then also um, four wheelers. We want to bring four wheelers um, and we'll get to why I guess here probably in a minute, but um, just what the legality of those were and where we can use them and then safety um, too. And, uh, and I'd mentioned in that, in those questions that were coming out for fall bear and the rifle season. And I mean, he just opened wide up. I mean, I think, I think just like you're, you were sort of like maybe not taken aback, but just intrigued by that hunt decision. They were too. And I mean, he really was kind of like um, willing to help um, in a way that I didn't expect, I, you know, down here, if you asked a, you know, a conservation officer about, you know, a piece of public land, they're just not going to say anything. They're yeah. just going to say, yep, they're deer. They're no deer. That's about all they say, which is, you know, their prerogative. And I understand they probably get just beat up about it, but um, this guy was willing to, I mean, he offered up, um, you know, he asked me what zone uh, units we were headed to. And I, I told him those and he said, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, a lot more hunters in that zone versus this one. And um, we kind of got into some minutia, and uh, eventually just said, you know what, call me back a couple weeks before you head out here. Um, we'll go back over your hunt plan and make sure you're headed to the right area. We'll get you, you know, elevations on where the um, acorns, we're seeing acorns. And then um, he didn't outright say, hey, we'll give you spots. But it sounded like, you know, hey, if we're seeing bears anywhere, we'll let you know. Um, and I think... Uh, probably my what research i've seen is that with as dry as it's been um out there and then of course with this new fire i think they're looking at a lot more human bear conflicts and they're probably excited about people um keeping those numbers back so they don't have to you know go out there and take care of bears themselves and my limited experience with those guys when i was in high school that was um that's kind of their main concern was human bear conflicts so. right Man, sounds uh, sounds like an incredibly helpful resource, and uh, as you said, hopefully, just even beneficial to them for their game management goals to have you guys hunting and doing it the right way, and literally helping them out too. Right? It's a win-win. Yeah, and I mean, he was—I I was shocked. I was shocked. I thought I'd get like a "yes, you can," "no, you can't" kind of question or kind of answer. And, um, he was real, real helpful and real nice. And I mean, that's been my experience with all every game warden since I've started hunting. Everybody I've run into has been that way. Um, so I mean, it's, it's a pleasant exchange for sure. Yeah. So you've said referring to your trip you're taking, you said we and us several times. So I want to hear how many guys do you have going on this trip? Are you all newer to hunting? How did you guys kind of come together? I mean, even that alone is like, a question we get all the time of, Hey, I'd love to go on a out of state hunt, but I can't find somebody to go with me. So I'm just really curious to hear kind of about the group that's going, the group dynamic, how it came together. Kind of the, 
the rundown, there's um, three of us, me, my brother-in-law, and a good friend of ours. We live in Waxahachie, and we've been friends for years and sort of all picked up the desire to hunt at about the same time. Um, then the three other fellows, one, uh, he lives in Austin. One guy lives in Arizona, and then one fellow lives in Oklahoma. And I met those guys through um, this sort of a, well, we're an official, it's an official nonprofit thing right now, but it was based off of a podcast. Um, did you ever listen to the hunting collective with Ben O'Brien? Um, I, I, yeah, I know I've caught some episodes, I think in the past. Yeah. So at one point he like offhandedly mentioned, Hey, there should be chapters in every state of people who want to learn how to hunt. And that just kind of ran away. And then I ended up being involved in the Texas part of that which then resulted in uh, me meeting some people, meeting these guys that way. I, and I put on a, uh, the first time I met Marco, who's the fellow from Austin, I, I, I hosted or put on or started a little small game hunt in a, some public land here. And he showed up to that with me and my brother-in-law. Um, so that's how I met him. If I can interrupt you real quick, what is this? Uh, you said it's like an actual nonprofit now. What is this organization, this group called? It's called uh, the Hunt in Common. And it's, um, we've got, there's chapters in all 50 states and it's been sort of a labor of love for, well, it is a labor of love for everybody who's involved. I mean, I don't make any money. I just basically try to get guys to be as excited about it, about hunting as I do and, um, or as I am. And so, uh, it's basically a mentorship program. I mean, we're trying to build a group of mentors um, that have experience because that's kind of the way hunting, it seems like it's going. And what I've experienced is um, it's really hard to find um, to, to find the energy to just go out and experience it yourself and learn all the rules and get all the tactics and all that on a level that can provide some kind of like satisfactory hunt, whether that's harvesting something or just enjoying the outdoors rather than just being miserable the whole time. So like in my experience, um, there, we had a family friend who, um, invited me a few times hunting, um, before, you know, at a time when I had little kids and couldn't manage the time or my job was too busy. And then when the time came for me to really want to hunt, I just bugged him and I told him, Hey, I went hunting on public land and I just badgered him eh, not badgered. He was pretty willing to take me, but, um, and that's sort of the thing that we're trying to do is teach people how to how to get into hunting, not necessarily like, um, you know, how to stalk an elk perfectly or whatever those things are. It's more about like, get excited about this, see what it's really about. It's not trophy hunting, those types of things. And, and I, and, and I'm speaking about this, like it's really codified. It's, it's pretty loose. There's going to be some pretty big developments in that. But I, like I said, I'm just like a guy that makes sure the, the Texas Facebook page <laughs> stays active and, um, and then when I want to do stuff, I put a call out to people, Hey, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, or, um, I've had two of the guys that are on the bear hunt. They've come to our, the little lease that I lucked into this last year, I've had them come out and shoot hogs. And, um, we've, we've gone through those kind of types of things, but yeah, um, that's how I met those three guys. Um, and then I met them in person. Um, I put together a crane hunt out in West Texas and um, just invited whoever wanted to come. And so we pooled all our money and got discounts and found an outfitter and we got to, you know, go shoot sandhill cranes. 
and um, which was a blast. I mean, it was all about camaraderie and, you know, experiencing something new. And um, it was a blast. It was the first time, I think it, up until that point, I had, I'd shot a hog four or five years before that. And that was the first time I'd harvested anything. And so not only was that a blast, but just kind of getting in the flow of things and seeing how all that stuff worked, learning. Um, but yeah, uh, back to the experience question only. So of the guys from Texas, I mean, we are spanking brand new hunters. Like I, tr I've been actively hunting for two years and I spent a whole year, um, I say a whole year hunting season. I probably spent 25 or 30 days in the field. I mean, turkey hunting, um, <laughs> deer hunting, hog hunting, mm -hmm. public land mostly, and didn't see a thing. Um, just falling on my face. And then um, this last year, this that family friend who mentored me, he had, they're getting kind of, I hate to say older because he's probably going to listen to this and get on me about it. But <laughs> they i think they just needed somebody to come in and and um kind of do a lot of the 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 real work that needed to be done fix trails clear field clear these little food plots you know just maintain stuff that just takes i mean we're there a, a day a month i mean i mean backbreaking labor that i love doing but um so we got on that and then at that point i'd harvested um a little spike and, you know, just elated that I got some meat in the freezer and I didn't have to call my wife and tell her, you know, <laughs> I'm heading home empty. Yeah. But, uh, and, um, and that's pretty, that's basically the experience of the rest of the guys from Texas. And then, um, the fellow from Arizona, his name's Mark. He's a real good guy. He has hunted a lot in his lifetime. Um, and he, he has a guide license in Arizona, but his, most of his experience is just day hunts, no backcountry really to speak of. Um, and then the fella in Oklahoma, Aaron, he is um, a lifetime hunter, you know, whitetail, some, some black bear over bait from what I gather, um, but no backcountry. So the, not only is it a new experience for, you know, half of us um, just being a, uh, a new type of hunt, um, and, but all of us, it'll be a brand new experience going out for, we're going to be gone for a total of seven days. Um, and I think, um, that's uh, for sure. That's the most anybody's ever, ever gone on a backcountry hunt. And I haven't even camped that many days in a row. So, um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be fun and interesting. Awesome. So that said, as you guys, as you talk about, you know, this week long, trip and camping and all that what is your the strategy i mean are you guys setting up like you're camping at the truck and just hiking every day do you plan to pack in is it pretty variable based on what you're seeing in the conditions what kind of that logistics piece on the execution of the hunt itself and camping and being in the backcountry yeah the goal um the kind of ideal set and, and like you said yeah it's gonna it's gonna probably adapt it once we get there if if it's just significantly different but the goal is to pack in and to go in as light as possible um and then have for the first night and maybe you know kind of kind of have a uh 
uh, rendezvous point at some, at some time during the hunt, but go in and the pairs will divide up into pairs. And then we just go off on our own in a general area. Um, and then, uh, kind of keep in, keep in touch via in reach. And then if we run out of food or water, we'll have spares in the truck. Um, and, and just have everybody has access to that as sort of a, you know, a safety net. Cause I don't know. I mean, what we're looking at, I mean, it looks like you could get 10 miles in, but I really think we're looking at, you know, a four to five mile, which to me, I know, I know I'm looking at this through rose colored glasses, but to me, isn't, isn't like a scary distance from a truck. If something were to happen, four miles can be, especially downhill can be covered pretty quick. Um, so I, I feel like we're pretty safe going out, just packing in and having little spike camps here and there and just going where we see sign or if we don't see sign, just keep moving until we do. I think there's definitely a benefit to, as you said, if you got six guys, you split up in pairs and go different directions, especially in the first part of the hunt. And then being able to, I mean, you're just literally covering three times as much ground as you or you and a buddy could. So, um, you know, maybe that means one group of guy gets, gets either on a bear or at least into some good sign has, you know, some good, um, success, whatever that looks like. And then maybe other guys are like, Nope, this area was a mistake. Let's cross this off the list. <laughs> We're coming back out and pivoting. So it's pretty cool to be able to, uh, just cover more ground. And as he said, maybe stay in touch with an in reach and just keep each other posted both for safety, but. Uh, potentially just to help guys kind of pivot on the plan as well. Yeah. One of the big concerns we have is just water. Um, I, and that's a, you know, an experience level thing, you know, we see on Onyx and, um, you know, Google earth, we see these bodies of water, but I mean, we're just really concerned. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's one of those, should we prepare to pack it in? And then, um, yeah, that that's where it gets the, the pack inside gets a little daunting to me is, you know, if you're packing in three days of water each um, and then planning on going back to the truck to re-up, um, how, I mean, what's your experience? Like, what do you, it, what, what would be your advice there? Yeah. I mean, I obviously haven't looked at the area or even the conditions of the year. So it's one of those things that honestly, that's a question I would be asking when you get uh, back in touch with your contact at fish and game, especially as the summer progresses um, is not only being able to, you know, as you said, look at maps and kind of e-scout and say, okay, this is supposedly a water source, but um, to touch base with him later in the year, as you guys get closer to the hunt and talk about, okay, what's the summer looked like, as you said, drought, fire, et cetera, what does that do to these water sources? And hopefully he's going to be able to help with that as well. Since he was already talking, you know, about potentially sharing some information on like at least elevation bands for food sources, I would imagine he'd be able to help with that, um, and the water sources as well. So I think once you are looking at the area and then also define the elevation range you anticipate hunting and then assess the conditions of that particular year in relation to the time that you're hunting, all those are going to be variables that influence whether that water source on the map or on X or what have you is going to be, you know, more or less reliable essentially. And is it, let's say, 
you know, just hypotheticals here. Um, is it, is it conceivable to pack in three days of water? I mean, is that, or is that just kind of, um, <laughs> unrealistic to add that much weight to a, to your, on top of food and all your other gear? Yeah. I mean, um, there's guys that do it. It's ideally only something you ever do out of true necessity, right? I've never had to do that. I've had to be strategic with water for like, okay, this next 36 hours, maybe like this next day, day and a half because of, um, usually for, at least for where I'm hunting, it's like, if you're gaining a ton of elevation and you know, that water's 1500 feet below you, it's like, all right, we don't want to do that every day. So um, I may be strategic with loading up for, yeah, essentially one to two days. I've never had to do three, but like, I know my buddy, Josh, who wants in Arizona, it's, he packs in sometimes all the water he needs for a three to four day hunt. I've never had to do that. Um, you know, it, water's always a really, really important factor period, not only for us as humans, but also because it's typically, going to have some level of influence on the game as well and where they are perhaps where they're concentrated. Um, and then even from just the human perspective, the conditions mattered. You guys are going a little bit later. It's not going to be quite as hot. Um, and then even assessing things like how mobile are you, you know, if, if you anticipate, okay, we're going in for two days, but we're really going to put the butt down and spend time behind glass. It's actually, you know, just, easier to be a little bit more strategic and proportion the water than it is going. We're going to make this 16 mile loop in the next two days. And it does look dry, but we're putting on a ton of miles and covering a ton of ground. That's a different demand, um, on yourself for water. So it definitely is just one of those things where obviously water is just heavy. So from a pure weight perspective, it gets heavy. And then I, even when, um, even when I'm headed into areas that I don't think water is going to be an issue, I'm still pretty conscious about how much total volume of water I can carry. And that doesn't mean that that's all filtered and drinkable at that point. Um, but I'll even look at, you know, okay, if I'm, if I have my quote unquote dirty water bag that I can filter from, I can always just load that up and have it remain as dirty water and filter it as needed. What type of capacity does that give me? Plus what type of capacity do I have, you know, to carry clean water and a bladder or in bottle, what have you. And there's times where I'm making that decision of, okay, I have total of, you know, five liters of capacity right now. It's going to be wise for me to not leave this water source until I'm truly carrying all five liters of water. So it, yeah, it, I don't have the experience of hunting desert stuff um, like Arizona, parts of New Mexico, where it truly can be a, a need to carry that much water. Yeah. We, um, I think what we're probably going to do is just prepare, just bring water and leave it in the truck. And, you know, if we have to, so another with the four wheeler, one of the questions we'd had is, um, of the, that, uh, game and fish officer was, um, if we use it to, to ferry both water to a central hub, you know, that's what kind of what we'd be using the four wheelers for is to get water to a place like back in there. We can't go off trail with them, but we could get, you know, to the end of a trail 
and then hub out from there. Um, and then also use it if we were to harvest something, use it to cover the last couple miles to get back, you know, to our truck. Cause, um, that brain, which brings me to another, the, the other kind of question I had about that is the meat care and that kind of heat. And, and again, I guess you, I, my, I guess your experience level in that desert type stuff, but, um, it looks like the temperatures are dropping into the, you know, forties at night conceivably in that area and elevation. Mm -hmm. Um, is that safe to hang meat overnight in that type of temperature? Yeah, for sure. That night, um, you know, the forties is a, a great range to have meat in. Um, you guys are going late September, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what, so it late September, that elevation range, which I haven't heard from you and feel free to share or not, but what do you anticipate those daily highs could be, or at least what's the average there? So around the, if we're in the eight to 8,500 range, um, that looks like it's could be in the eighties. Um, and then the higher points, which would be 10 to 11,000, it looks like that drops significantly down to like, you know, early to mid seventies, um, maybe even sixties without sun. So I think, up there, I'm not as worried about it as when we get down lower. Um, you know, if you take something in the you know, morning and you got to hike it out four hours, that's going to be, um, I think that'll be pretty tough. But yeah, um, like, but if we were to get something in the evening, I feel like it's okay. But, you know, down here, you only, in Texas, you only hang stuff if it's, you know, because the temperature could swing could be 60 or 70 degrees even in November. So mm-hmm. it could be 30 at night and then. 80 during the day. And so you have to really take care of things um, pretty fast. Yeah. The forties at night would be completely fine. Um, you know, if that's kind of the, the expected temperature range, say the forties to the seventies, forties to eighties, I would basically do exactly what you just mentioned. If you guys shoot something morning to midday, um, especially with the two of you, you know, hunting in pairs, perhaps even another group that's maybe close by that could come help. But, you know, the two guys like being able to pack out a bear, um, that you potentially shoot in the morning doable. Um, and that would be what I would plan to do is get that back to the four wheeler, get that back to the truck. And then obviously that is assuming you have some level of, um, planning and forethought for cooling at the truck. Um, but yeah, if you were to shoot in the afternoon towards the evening hours and, you know, even if it is mad mid afternoon, but by the time you get done skinning the bear after recovering it and then have the meat and game bags and it's getting close to sunset, yeah, just making a good decision on location to, uh, shade it for the rest of the daylight that may remain. And then, get it in a position where it's going to just be able to circulate and have some airflow. I wouldn't think twice about having that, um, for the next 12, 14, 16 hours overnight in the, you know, as the sixties turn into the forties essentially, um, and, and then start packing the next morning. So you'd be totally good just with the kind of the basics of keeping it clean, get it in some game bags, uh, to keep, critters or what have you from the outside bugs, et cetera, getting to it and then get it some airflow, um, let it cool overnight in those conditions and be packing the next morning would be totally fine. Cool. Yeah. That was, that's one of my biggest concerns is that 
eat, you know, the packing something heavy out at night, just being inexperienced and, you know, we're doing our best to get in shape. Um, but that seems like that could be, that's like the, the time for something to go wrong. And if we can eliminate that variable, um, that would, that not only would it make us feel better, but our wives and kids too, not to have to yeah. worry about something like that. So. Yeah. hundred percent. And that's, I mean, I think that's the wise call is assessing the situation. So maybe it is evening, but you guys end up, maybe it's two, three, four miles and it's good trail, you know, where you're not doing a bunch of like crazy side hilling off trail and deadfall and it's a safer situation. You guys do decide like, Hey, we're fully willing to hike in the dark a bit. Knowing we have decent trail, um, realistic mileage and get back to the truck and not only get the, the bear on ice, but you know, open up a beer and get a drink at two in the morning <laughs> and make that decision. Um, but yeah, I fully agree with you of like, if you guys are newer, um, and you know, air on the side of safety. And if you're in a situation you're unsure of, or terrain, that's terrible to then navigate in the dark with a heavy pack, like you're making the right call at that point, And the meat's going to be fine, uh, for that night and then get moving in the morning. One of the other sort of, uh, this, this comes maybe as a, um, I don't know. It's just a practical question. So like, snoring i don't i don't really ever hear anybody on these pod on podcasts talk about snoring <laughs> um like i'm not really you know it's one of those things people snore i have sleep apnea like it got to the point where like my health was being affected and i'm a relatively fit person um and i had to get a cpap and all that stuff changed my life i mean took year i mean added i would imagine a decade or more to my life um that being said is that like, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, is it going to just scare everything to, you know, to run to the next County or is it, does it even register or does, are you, do does that even, is that even a factor? Yeah, I wouldn't be concerned with it. I think your, your presence would be just as broadcast known or felt without snoring just by your human scent or other things. So it's not that it's like, I wouldn't be worried of going, oh, we're going to sleep, you know, near where we're going to be hunting, but my snoring alone is going to ruin it. And it's like, no, it's like your other okay. chatter and presence and sins and all that. I mean, the only thing snoring is going to do is just make the guy you're hunting with a little bit crazy at, you know, two in the morning, perhaps. But <laughs> um, I mean, that, literally, I know guys who decide very specifically to hunt with separate solo shelters so they can get a little bit of space and not be stuck in the same tent. Cause the one guy saws logs like crazy. Um, Oh, we, then, yeah, we definitely made that. We already made that decision because yeah. Um, so do that. I, like if, it, if it bugs a guy, he can wear earplugs. A lot of guys struggle with that though. Cause guys don't feel safe or comfortable sleeping in a tent in the back country and not being able to hear. But then if you also spend enough nights near a guy who's snoring, you, you may decide, I'm okay. If a bear's coming, I'd rather not hear Jim snore type thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, and yeah, that's just one of those, like it kind of seems frivolous, but it's just no, a, it's a great you know, question. A like you said, it's yeah. not covered. So I, I love those questions because if they're not talked about, then there's uh there's some unknown there. And I think like the last kind of the last tactic question I had is, so they allow um, hunting bears uh, with dogs in New Mexico and I don't know um, 
what the what the probability is that we'd run into that. But from the things that I've read, it's like that's the primary, you know, obviously it's a higher um, success rate. I mean, what do you do? What's the etiquette if you run in, like if you cross paths with um, a pack of dogs, is it going to just blow out the whole area? Um, does it even, is it sort of like the storing where it's sort of, it is what it is and you just keep moving? Um, what should, have you had any experience with that or? I haven't, man. I haven't hunted areas um, where dogs have been present or that have had encounters. I I would be, yeah, not having thought about this. My first thought that comes to mind is if I hear dogs, you know, it is going to give me some, some reservations about hunting that area. So is that an immediate, we're pulling out of here and going to plan B? I don't know, but I would be thinking about it, to be honest with you. Um, if you were to come across dogs and like, let's say they pass you, I would probably sit tight a bit there and see if the owners, you know, running or tracking those dogs, they weren't immediately present or visible were to come by on the dog's trail, right? They're going to be trailing the dogs. I would be really curious to, to talk to that hunter, whoever was running the dogs, um, just to see not only where have they been hunting or do they plan to continue to be in the area, et cetera. Um, once you know that again, that's probably going to influence, um, decisions on, do you stay in the area or not? I mean, maybe if, if that guy running dogs was covering a ton of country and literally just passing through, I could be totally wrong. I wouldn't, my default wouldn't be that we necessarily have to get out of there. Like the, the bears have been influenced by the presence of those dogs, presumably have at least heard them, if not been pursued by them. But if those guys running dogs are passing through or leaving the area, I think, I don't know. My thought would be that once the dog's presence has left, the bears maybe not going to immediately let their guard back down or what have you, but my intuition would be that those dogs again have a pretty big presence vocally, even their scent, et cetera. And when the bears aren't being actively pursued, treat, et cetera, and now it's just you guys without dogs being present and you're patient and maybe glassing again, I'm not familiar with the area you'll be hunting to know how glass bullet is, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that that would like say one encounter would ruin everything, but if guys were going to be present and in, in the area, then I would be probably looking at getting somewhere else. I was talking in circles yeah. there, but hopefully that helps. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does. Cause it, it just, that that's the information is talk to the hunters and that would and, be yeah, my they could hope. Say, yeah. Yeah. They could say, Hey, yeah, we're camped out here for four days. Exactly. And they were there before us and it is what it is, you know? Yeah. Um, or they could say, no, we started, you know, six miles over there, ended up here. We're moving elsewhere to, you know, today or whatever. Like that's what that's it, at the end of the day, that's what I would want most. If I heard or encountered dogs would be able to really talk to whoever's running them and see exactly what they're doing, what their plans are. Yeah. And I guess it could be, I mean, just not to be, left turn but it could be that they're hunting cougars and they've could seen be, bear yeah. i guess that yeah so i guess it's worth it um 
Yeah, you know, uh, I think they're, you know, part of one of the, the, I think the fun sides for us, but then also, you know, um, difficult, it's difficult, makes it challenging, is that it is such a wide open uh, experience for us. I mean, I mean, we just have never, never done anything like this. So, I mean, that's kind of the fun part where, it is. you know, where you just kind of like by sheer will, we will make this happen and show up and throw your packs on and, you know, get going. And I mean, it, we, we go on uh, little ruck hikes or just little training runs. And I mean, all we talk about is like, what if this happens? What about this? And yeah. you think we'll see anything cool other than, you know, and with looking at pictures of what it looks like out there. And I've been to the Gila when I was in high school very, very briefly, but, um, and worked in that area in that, you know, the forest, I worked for the forest service for a year in uh, high school. And so I know a lot of it and it, it, it's such a cool area and it's so foreign to, you know, most everybody's been to Colorado to ski or camp or whatever. And, and then, you know, everybody down here has been to some state park to hike and camp or even hunt in a state park or a wildlife reserve down here and it's just so foreign to those things it's such a new thing a new uh landscape obviously that i mean it's just exciting i mean the whole bit you know like running into hunters and other hunters is going to be fun to us you know if there's a you know holy crap there's a guy walking down the ridge let's just wait here and talk to him like that's exciting to us um where i think that's going to be the benefit to us in the long run is just that just general um, joy of it. Well, hopefully no matter what happens, it, it'll just be a blast. You know, we don't have any expectations. We, don't, we certainly haven't had any that much success in the past. So we're not really, the bar isn't set very high for us. Dude. I love it. I mean, that's the end of the day, you know, I'm a planner by nature. It's like part of me goes that direction and I want to know and I want to plan and I want to have answers. But that's one thing on the flip side I love about hunting is you never know what you're going to get into. And so even though we can sit here and on this podcast and pretty much every single other one talk about like advice and, you know, do this, not that, et cetera. It's like at the end of the day, we don't want all the answers. Like if we had all the answers about what to do and how this was going to go and what was going to happen and where to find the animals. And like everything was scripted out. Hunting wouldn't have the appeal that it does. It's the unknown and like the adventure. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen. Let's go figure this out. And the challenge, like that's, that's why, at least for me, and I think for, for most guys, what we love about getting into the wilderness and pursuing wild animals. Yeah. I'm, I'm similar to you. There's with the planning side. I mean, I'll, I'll look at Onyx and Google Earth till I mean till I basically fall asleep trying to find new spots or new areas and just keep looking and looking and you know how are we going to drive there and I, we've got we do weekly or bi-weekly Zoom calls where we assign tasks to certain people like my brother-in-law's job is to find the taxidermist and then um, and you know th that type of thing and at the end of the day. Um, you know, in, in research and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like, and the, here, I'll, I'm going to derail that for just a second. The best piece of advice, uh, speaking of podcasts, the best piece of advice that I heard was actually on your podcast. I, for, I forget the, um, the, the guest, but he had said, 
basically when you go out, make sure that you and your hunting partner are the same type of hunter. Make sure that you are like talk before, make sure, are you the kind of guy that wants to like sit at the, the main camp 10 feet away from the truck and guzzle beer and get up at, you know, noon and wander out and stumble through the woods and then go back and drink more or, or are you the type of guy that just, if we don't see anything, we just get up and move and, or we're constantly on the move, embracing the suck and embracing the, the challenge and the adventure. Um, and really no amount of planning. Um, we've done, I've done a lot of planning up to that point and a lot of talking to the guys and it just it hit me as like a ton of bricks that, man, I, I, I'm thankful I heard that. Cause we got to have those conversations. Cause I can't, I don't want to get out there. And, you know, the straw I draw is a guy that, you know, really didn't know that um, we weren't going to bring alcohol. We're not going to, you know, you're not going to pack in a bunch of alcohol. You're not going to sit around the campfire till two in the morning. You know, it's not going to, we're not even going to have campfires, but um, that really was impactful. And it also, like you said, it, it opened up this idea that, you're like a group and a team and you got a, a, a solid focus on just having the best possible time we can. Um, and that doesn't mean the same for everybody. And mm-hmm. luckily after I did, I talked to everybody kind of individually, we were all on the same page. I mean, everybody's in the same page and all just very like excited to get out there and see what's going to happen. You know, um, that's great, man. I'm excited. Any other, uh, we got, I'm sure we could talk for another hour, but any other questions you want to hit? Um, a, just a couple like gear questions. Um, within reach, um, obviously we're spent, we're all spending a boatload of money getting ready for this. Um, if we're in pairs and we stick to those pairs, um, does ever, do both guys need an in reach or can we, um, can we get away with, I mean, not, I don't want to get away with anything. I don't want to cheat safety, but um, is it safe to just have one person in that pair have a in reach? Yeah, I think, you know, as long as you're hunting together and there's not plans of like, hey, we're going in pairs, but then on day two, you know, you're going to go two miles that direction. The other guy goes two miles the other direction. And now your pair has then split to cover more country. Um, but you're truly planning on staying together. I don't mean you got to be side by side every minute, but eventually, essentially staying within sight or vocality distance in general of one another. I don't see a reason you each need an in reach. Um, so yeah, I would say as long as each group kind of has one, you're good to go. Um, obviously, the communication of tech checking in with the wife, checking on the ha- with the home that's great. Clearly, being able to hit SOS on a instance that's truly truly needed is great um and then amongst if you guys do have you know say three groups and three in reaches being able to send messages back and forth just to each other um could also be helpful if you guys are going to be you know each pair is going to be apart for call it two or three days or what have you just to check in so yeah i think one per pair is fine as long as those pairs aren't getting miles apart from each other gotcha gotcha um, and then, uh, when we kind of bounced around glassing, it, it does appear, I mean, from what I've read and, um, the topography and my, my limited experience out there, there will be opportunities to glass, um, not giant distances, um, mm-hmm. but enough, 
to, to glass, um, you know, across valleys and things like that, little drainages. Um, so I, I'm like, again, spending, you know, the uptake on hunting gear is pretty rough, just, you know, rifles and binoculars and all that stuff, things that I just didn't have, you know, you're buying over the course of a couple of years. Sure. Um, something like tripods is, is a tripod. Can you get away with a lightweight anything or is it really essential that you have, you know, um, very like a real high dollar purpose built backcountry tripod? So what, when you say for the tripod, is that for binoculars, scouting, spotting scope, shooting, all the above, two of the three, what's the use case for the tripod? For me, it would be specifically just uh, glassing, just binoculars. I, I, I don't think I'll need, um, I don't think there's going to be um, a need for a spotting scope just because you're looking at a black spot on a hill mm-hmm. and I don't think you'll need to pick it apart until you get a little closer. Um, and I think you, y'all have said that on the, on the podcast and then other places have mentioned that. And then as far as shooting rests go, um, I have like a, I have a long extended bipod or shooting sticks, or I was thinking about getting one of those wiser precision, the little that attaches your, um, uh, trekking poles together. I think that's wise. Is that wiser that does that? Yeah, it is. So I would just be using it for my binos. Okay. Um, yeah, so good to know. The reason I ask is like, I, I do think the importance of tripods can get grossly underestimated. Um, meaning you can take like, say if you were having, if you did have a spotting scope, you could take a killer Swaro spotting scope and put it on a really crappy tripod and just have a very useless spotting scope. Um, I mean, the tripod is so integral to, the stability. And then obviously with a higher magnification, like an optic, like a spotting scope, any instability is going to be greatly magnified and really just make that optic unusable. Um, for binos, I do love mounting binos to a tripod. Um, again, it's taking your physical movement out of the system. It makes your binos more effective, um, creates less fatigue on you because the tripod's doing the work of holding things, not your body, muscular, um, structure, position, anything like that. So I love it. Um, that said, if you don't strictly plan on like sitting and glassing for very extended periods of time, I would probably skip a a really cheap tripod and just wait until you had the budget and the need for a better tripod. Um, so if you're thinking of spending, you know, less than a couple hundred bucks, I'd probably just wait, you know, once you get into a couple hundred bucks and get a decent lightweight tripod, then you're just in a different class of stuff versus you know, spending 60, 80, 100, 120 bucks on something pretty cheap, pretty unstable, and then unfortunately not very effective. So if for glassing, obviously your position matters, you can, you know, sit, get your knees up, elbow on the knees, that helps. You can sit and put your pack in front of you and kind of rest on your pack, that helps. Um, you can use a trekking pole. 
um, to help support that. So you essentially have like a monopod type setup. It'll take out a lot of instability and again, save your body some fatigue that would help. Um, so there's a lot of improvisation you could do. Um, so those would maybe be options I would consider unless you're already planning on being able to spend a couple hundred bucks on a tripod. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, that's the best answer I could have heard. Cause I'm like a big proponent of what my dad used to call throwing good money after bad. And, uh, I, I just, you know, and it, it, if I don't have to have one, you know, then that's the best solution. Cause we're already in a situation where we're going to be pushing max pack weight, um, mm-hmm. with our, you know, kind of entry level gear. And if we don't have to add, a, you know, a couple pounds to that, um, then it just makes the, that buffer a little bit better. And then, you know, reaching back to the conversation of water, if there's less things in there, that means I can pack more water if I have to. So, yeah, I'm all for like a budget, get you by option when there is one, but I would also say that a really cheap tripod is often doing more harm than good. Um, so it's just one of those things I would say, yeah, just skip it until you're again, not even everybody needs to maybe eventually invest a couple hundred bucks in one, but basically until you can, that's probably, I would just improvise, um, use other ways of supporting, especially since we're only talking binos and not a, a spotting scope or anything. I guess the last, um, gear question I had is, um, snake bike kits. Do they, do they work? Is it worth having? I know you, you said you don't have a ton of experience down in, you know, snake, maybe it's maybe a snake country, more places, but, um, is it worth, is that something worth like really digging into or is it just a get bit, get out kind of thing? Yeah, I don't have any person I've hunted in areas where there's like rattlesnakes a bunch of times. Um, you know, I think things like good gators or whether you want to do like a full on snake proof gator. Um, there's actually a guy who listens to this podcast who was developing some hunting gators that were also snake proof like legitimately tested and i can't remember the name maybe he'll hear this and remind me um i yeah i i've hunted in areas where that's been somewhat of a concern um and obviously just use a bit more caution um and where and how i'm moving if i feel that that's a concern i have packed snake bite kits um in the past it is one of those things that i i will fully admit Years ago, I got a snake bite kit for a specific trip, was gung ho, read up on about it, how to use it, what not to do. And like, basically since that time, I've packed it a few times, but now as I think about it, I'm like, I don't remember exactly what I was supposed to do with all this. So like, I would be in your position if I was going to just carry a snake bite kit of like, also making sure I actually knew what to do and what not to do with it. I think that's one thing that, uh, I'm sure a lot of us do. I will say, I see it myself of it's easy to get the assurance of having the right thing, but if you don't have the knowledge on how to use it, your snake bite kit's worthless. Like I see some guys do that with um, more and more guys carry tourniquets these days, like in their medical kit uh, in case there is a, you know, a really bad slip of the knife, gunshot wound, broadhead puncture, et cetera, all for that. But it's like, are guys using, are, are guys having the understanding of how, when to use a tourniquet, have they practiced application, et cetera, or they just go, yeah, tourniquet will save me. I don't know how to do 
anything with it or what I'm going to do or what I should not do with it. I'll figure that out when it happens. And it's like, well, you can't just do that. So, um, yeah, I, I would relook at, I would, if I was in your shoes, I would be relooking at that myself as I would say, I've carried them in the past, looked at them in the past. I don't tend to carry one now because I haven't hunted areas where that's a big concern, although it is potential. Like I've, I've been on Turkey hunts, for example, and almost stepped on rattlesnakes and thankfully just haven't had to deal with anything firsthand. Yeah. Where we hunt, um, I went on a, uh, public land hunt down in South Texas and, you know, the number one thing everybody said is, you know, bring your snake bite kit and make sure you got your snake boots on and don't walk through brush. You can't see the bottom of, which is impossible in that country. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, I went, I put on, shoot 20 miles in three days <clears throat> didn't see a single snake not a one i saw gators and you know game and mill guy and deer that were out of reach but uh not a single snake so i i kind of I, I i have i'm like on that bridge of i don't know that i'm even going to worry about it but i know that that's a question our group has is you know there is there's some snake concern and i'm not particularly scared of snakes i um kind of the opposite but i don't uh i don't want to be throwing a bunch of stuff in there that like you said i don't have any any knowledge of and to have that false sense of um oh i I have a snake bite kit so i can be a little bit careless exactly to me is trumps the or is trumped by if i get bit i just need to make a decisive you know get it elevated get out of there and um get to the truck as soon as possible and making sure that everybody's on the same page. So if you get a snake bite kit, throw it in your pack and do a little bit of research, understand on the best ways to use it. Does the guy you're hunting with know that? And does he know what to do? And does he know where it's at in your pack? Like, and it, that doesn't just apply to snake bite kits, but extrapolate this onto on several different things. I mean, yes, on first aid, again, going back to share the inReach. Maybe you only have one per group, but make sure everybody knows how to use it. Make sure if it is stored in a pack, guys know where it's at. Um, make sure that guys always like, I would recommend all of you guys have offline maps. Like one guy goes down, slip, fall, hit rock, unconscious, boom. Like, does that other guy know where you're at? Does he know how to get back to the truck? Does everybody know how to get back into the truck if it's locked up? Like, you don't got to go crazy, but you do need to think through just the very basics on everybody being on the same page of the the basic, like what and how situations, if, if something weird happens. Yeah. Sort of a, you know, since I work in construction, we have, you know, muster points and safety plans and all that. I'll, yeah. That's a good idea. It's just that it's a great idea is to have all that squared away and, codified so that you know everybody knows the situation i'd already planned on having you know emergent everybody gets the same emergency numbers and all that but um and then to add to that maybe make it um you know where this the first aid kits and everybody's pack is in the same location in everybody's pack it's all in the lid you know mm-hmm. or you know that that type of thing um that yeah that that sparks a whole new level of conversation we can have on those zoom calls is, Hey, we need to make sure and kind of make a uniform pack, uh, you know, or 
get uniform locations for all of that stuff so that no matter who's with who or who goes down, if we, if, you know, even if a pair, let's say my pair gets, both of us get hurt and they find us, they're going to have to find the stuff in our pack. So we all have to kind of be on the same page, all six of us. So, yeah, just basic stuff. And yeah, you don't have to be paranoid, but um, shoot, I was just thinking like me and a, a buddy went out for a hike a couple weeks ago and we were getting pretty far away from the truck and stuff. And I had driven down there and on my truck, there's a keypad uh, to get in the door. So I was locked my keys in my truck on stuff like that. And, you know, I just like told them like, Hey, put this in your phone, save it. Like this is the keypad to get in my truck. And then here's where my keys are. So something happens to me and he has to get back to the truck to go get help or whatever. Just that basic little, just precautions um, is just really important. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I guess we're kind of up on the hour here. Do you have any, I mean, any suggestions or any advice, you know, for a bunch of new hunters? You know, nothing specific. <laughs> I've, I've said on the podcast, my, my default answer to that question is always just like, go enjoy it. Like just soak up every moment as we talked about before, even when you don't feel like you have all the answers or maybe you don't even feel like you know what you're doing at times, like just be present, learn from that even. Um, and just, it sounds like you guys are already well on the way and are in the right frame of mindset, but just enjoy it. It's, it's one of those things where if you get too caught up in trying to make something happen or on, Oh gosh, we're not seeing bears. So this is automatically a bad trip type thing. Like you're missing out on so much. So that's just kind of my default advice, but, uh, yeah, I think it sounds like you guys have a really good plan. Um, you know, I would just look at the country, think about what's the most effective way to cover the country. And maybe that means picking out a very specific route that we guys can cover ground, but maybe that means staying put, finding the right vantage point and being patient to glass from the right spot. So I think as you guys get closer to the hunts, kind of solidify some areas with your e-scouting, then get back in touch with the guy from uh, fish and game, maybe get some information on elevations and food sources. That's going to further refine it. And then as you refine that plan, just think about what's the most efficient way to give ourselves the best chance of seeing those bears that we're after. Um, yeah, that that's what comes to mind. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds, I mean, I guess from your, you, you, you say it, I, and I've heard you say the similar things to other people, but it, 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 having had a conversation with you, like it does make it, it, that's a, still a fresh perspective. I think, you know, it's, it's hard for even new hunters like us to not have this. Oh, we're going to come back with, you know, X, Y, and Z bear or whatever. Um, but yeah, to be reminded of that. And and I and I and I'll make sure to remind the guys on the next call we have is like to maybe set those expectations. Like, just make sure whatever we get into, it's always going to be something new and something that we've never done before, and may and honestly may never get the chance again. You know, so um, soak it all up. Well, what a great way to cap it. No matter how a hunt ends, if we have the opportunity to get out into nature, into some wild places and chase wild animals, there's so much value just in that pursuit regardless of the outcome. I hope that you guys have some moments where you are able to do 
just that, create some memories and live some adventure this fall. Stay in touch and let us know how it goes for you. Send an email to podcast at exomontgear.com and we'll talk to you soon.